This is Limitless Possibility. I'm Luc Olivier Dumablet. And I'm Yannick Magnan. And what's our topic for this week, Yannick? Fighting game netcode. Good, but before we start, we have some follow-up. Yep, and first I want to start with some follow-up for episode 164, No, It Doesn't Do Stonks, which is our last episode, uh, specifically <laughs> for Le Colivier's session, Bring Accessibility to Charts in Your App. Uh, when we were discussing that session on the show, I knew that I had something in my head that reminded me of this, but I wasn't quite sure what it was. Um, and upon doing a little bit more research after the fact, uh, I realized what those two things were. So I sent one of them to the Godivier and I didn't send him the other. Uh, Ooh, okay. And it'll become obvious why. So, uh, the first was something called sound of sorting. I think you may have seen this. Uh, it was popular when we were in Sejep. Uh, it's a visualization and audio representation of sorting algorithms, Oh, yeah, yeah, it, it does ring a bell. Uh, the reason I didn't link it to you is because when I was watching this, I realized that it is a massive seizure risk. So if you are epileptic, <laughs> please don't watch okay. this uh, or go to this link, which will be in the show notes. Um, so yeah, that yeah, it was much worse than I remembered it being. And I, I have personally become more sensitive to flashing lights and that stuff over the years so uh just a warning uh but it, it is a cool idea nonetheless it's just not for everyone and then the other thing that i was reminded of was this thing i found when i was uh grinding for apex legends I, i've played about 300 games of apex legends this season so i've been thinking about it a lot and um Somebody had actually made this audio mnemonic for the recoil of the guns in Apex Legends, where they give it a sound based on the chromatic scale that you can memorize. And if you think of that sound when you're shooting the gun, you should be able to control the recoil accurately. Now, by my experience, that doesn't work for me. I I really (laughs) tried. Uh, But... uh, it was hilarious when I found this video and I linked it to the guy. And I'm curious what you thought of it. <laughs> um, so I watched it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you had and no idea what you were watching. Yes. So most of the text, and there was a lot of scrolling text in Japanese, I think. Mm-hmm. It seemed to look like Japanese. Uh, and there was a couple of words in English and one of them was recoil. So I was like, okay, it's something about guns. And I think in the title it says Apex Legends. I was like, okay. And I was like, what am I looking at? Because it's repeating the same sound over and over and over again. And I'm just, I won't do it, but I'm sure it's still stuck to my head because I think I watched it earlier today. <laughs> so, and it's a two minute video. So it's kind of crazy. Uh, but yeah, it seems to kind of end at the direction of the recoil. And it's, it's a bit crazy. So you had to explain it to me. And I was like, Okay, let's say I understand how to use this data compared to the audiograph that uh, we were talking last week. Last week, but uh, it seems that people uh, are finding uh, creative ways to do the more or less the same thing. Um, and it's funny that you are also mentioning the sorting algorithm because I recall seeing maybe not this exact link because you haven't sent it to me yet, uh, but I recall seeing animations where. Uh, you would visually see how the sorting algorithm works and it's crazy smoothing kind of a feeling when I mm-hmm. watch those. It's like, mm, oh, it does it. Yes, it yeah. does it correctly. <laughs> and then it, the, the GIF restarts. It's like, oh, will it do it correctly? Oh, yes, it did it correctly again. And it's like really smooth. It's smooth, smoothing as a feeling. So uh, maybe if you remove the... Uh, 
the seizure flashes animation that would be better but I've, i'm sure you can find a lot of them uh more with music and uh maybe less problematic problematic animations on the web yeah uh, next up is some follow-up for episode 161, Burden of Explicitness. This is, like, breaking of a couple of hours ago. Um, at the end of that episode, I said that my personal app development projects were on hold. And, mm. uh, this week, uh, I went on a huge rant about how modern music apps suck twice. <laughs> and I also used the music app on Big Sur quite a bit this week, and it Uh-oh. really fucking sucks. Um, so I, I basically, all I've been saying all week long is I just want to rewrite iTunes for, for modern OSs. And so I revived my music player project. I'm changing its name to Cezura and I gave it a web page on my website and a public Git repository. I have no code written for it yet. I haven't taken any decisions with regards to programming language or UI framework, uh, but I have gotten more serious about drafting out the basic app architecture and how different components of the app will interact so that when I am ready to take a decision about programming language, all of that will already be uh, mapped out. So I'm going to be able to jump right into development. Um, but yeah, uh, I can't stand the stupid music app anymore, so I'm taking matters into my own hands, and I am doing it in public, so, yeah. Wow, you even have a domain for it. Not a domain, it's a page on my website. Really? Okay, I'm looking at the page on your website, but it does, when you click on the code base. Oh, okay, okay never mind. I was like, it looks like GitHub, but it's not GitHub. No, it's uh, Codeberg. Uh, okay, that's why. that's why I'm getting confused. I was like, oh. I saw the name, the two names in C's and didn't read the rest. That's why. <laughs> uh, and the, the last bit of follow-up is about the Switch OLED model, which was announced, uh, was it this week or last week? I don't even remember. I think it was last week, right? Uh, last week, you're correct, because it was announced during my VK, which was last week. Yeah, yeah. so it's just a Switch with a 7-inch OLED display. It's not a Switch Pro yet. Um, I don't want to spend too much time on it, but people are kind of pissed that it's not a Switch Pro because a couple of games recently have come out with like PowerPoint frame rates. Uh, if you look <laughs> at Zelda Age of Calamity and East 9 in particular recently, the chops along at like 15, 20 frames per second. It does not look great. It reminds me of N- the N64. It's not cool. Uh, if you, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, if you want a developer perspective on this, uh, Modern Vintage Gamer is a really good, uh, YouTuber who also develops Switch games. Uh, so huh. he has his own personal perspective on that. So I'm going to include a link to that uh, in the show notes. And I'm also going to include a link to my knowledge base article about why I don't like OLED screens. Of course. I, I forgot you don't like OLED screens. Yes. Uh, I don't like it for gaming especially. But yeah. Uh, so that's it for my follow-up. You have some follow-up now. Yeah, before we move, I did like to mention, though, you, I think you'll be happy uh, that today Tony and I were having a conversation about the uh, the Nintendo Switch OLED, and I was like, we're not buying it. Come on. like It's w- not worth anything. And the one thing I've learned that I was not aware of uh, is that it's $50 more expensive in Canadian dollar than the current model. And I was like, why is it not replacing the current model? That's the part I don't understand. So that's the fun stuff. But yes... Uh, that's my main opinion about more or less uh, the OLED model of the Switch. So for my follow-up, um, 
my first item is from episode uh, 162, but we can't find it where I celebrated my four years of ownership, my Focus RS. And I had a long charade about uh, modern car colors. So I was saying that I felt that, especially in the last... <laughs> 10 years or so, it felt that when you want to buy a car, it's either black, gray, silver, or white. And uh, I forgot if it was I ran into it or Yannick ran into it, and I don't know if the data is really through, but somebody on Twitter uh, was posting the exact same thought with a picture of just gray cars. Uh, And somebody replied with a chart of car colors per year from 90 to 2020. And... I won't do autograph to describe it, but you could see that there was about, it went down as around 95, 96, where about 40% of cars were either white, silver, gray, or black. And now, sadly enough, we are nearly 80% of cars sold. And I assume in the US and blah, 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 that are one of those four quote-unquote colors so a lot of shrinkage uh, a big trend of the 90s i guess yannick and i are kids of the 90s and i love green and there's a big green bulb uh section from 90 to 2005 and then just disappears more or less <laughs> uh, same thing with purple it's a thinner so i'll link it in the show notes but if you are like me and you feel that bright color cars are non-existent on the road these days you are not alone and if this data is is to be true uh, because there's no source on it uh, that's quite interesting next up in the categories of dodgy marketings and that's a pun intended uh dodge has announced it will make electric muscle cars in 2024 and it's funny because they announced that the next day or i think it was even the same day so two hours before they announced that their boss said the, the automaker's ceo I, I don't forget i don't didn't take note of the exact title of the person that says that but uh, yes, but I was a CEO, so I was correct. Uh, did say that, oh, you know, Dodge won't make any electric cars because you know what? They're not making electric cars. They're making e-muscle cars because, of course, it makes some kind of marketing sense to not say it's an electric car, but it's still a, a muscle car. And one of the quotes they've posted during their announcement because that was during the uh, electric day that happened a couple day. Electric Vehicle Day from uh, July 8. And one of the quotes they had is that the world's first full battery electric muscle car. And it's like, I thought you said no electric. but So yeah, so a bit of weird marketing as we've discussed in previous episode, like with Volkswagen saying they will be rebranded to Volkswagen in the US, which was also a marketing stunt. So yeah. Uh, not, I don't, I don't even care about the announcement, to be honest. Uh, (laughs) The shitty marketing around it and the shitty quotes from Dodge uh, people made it, dare I say, more interesting than even the announcement itself. Uh, I think the main interesting thing for Dodge is 
they not didn't even dabble too much in hybridization nor electric cars. They started to have a Jeep recently. I think it got out this year or even last year, something like that. So they're kind of late to the game. So I guess that's why they're announcing that. And they try to keep their brand as muscle car people, uh, even if they go electric. So I guess it's interesting if you're a muscle car person. Uh, hopefully you'll still believe in Dodge being able to deliver that with electric vehicle. And that is it for my follow-up and for the follow-up section. So let's go talk about Netcode. I'm excited. Yeah. Uh, so this might be surprising to uh, less enfranchised gamers in the audience, um, but fighting games have consistently lagged behind a bunch of other game genres in terms of the quality of online multiplayer experience. And when you look at it on paper, it doesn't really seem to make any sense. Uh, if you not at all yeah if you look at fighting games like they're generally one versus one peer-to-peer games and they're already deterministic which means that if you uh record all of the inputs from both players and you play them back in a different game uh it should give the exact same results every time and that's good because it already eliminates a lot of weird randomness and stuff that other games have that makes it hard to uh, have consistent multiplayer and all that stuff. And fighting games already have this because of their competitive nature and whatnot. And if you compare this to more ambitious endeavors like MMORPGs, which have been in, like the modern MMORPG has existed since 2004 with World of Warcraft, or Battle Royale games, which sort of flourished in 2017, these games are coordinating hundreds of players. And it seems really weird that we can't get something that seems so basic and limited in scope working reliably across relatively modest geographical distances. So in this episode, I want to talk about two and a half ways of implementing online multiplayer in a fighting game. What? (laughs) Two and a half ways? It will make a lot of sense when we get there. Okay. Uh, there's a bad way, there's a good way, and there's a kind of in-between way. Oh my goodness, you're even naming them this way? Oh, wow. <laughs> um, just for the sake of keeping things simple to model in your head, uh, all of the examples in this episode are going to focus on one versus one fighting game, but on paper, all of these techniques can be applied for uh, fighting games with more players, like four to eight player Smash Brothers, for example. Um, so... Th- that is going to be important. And uh, I also want to briefly clarify some terminology that I'm going to be using a lot during this entire episode, and that is frames. Uh, there are going to be two basic contexts in which I'm going to be using the word frames. Uh, the first one is, of course, in reference to drawing frames, which is rendering uh, a f- a frame of graphics on screen like that is pretty straightforward. It's generally what you think of when you think of frames. But I'm also going to be using frames as a unit of measure of time. Uh, so uh, right now, modern fighting games are running at 60 frames per second. So a frame represents 16.66 milliseconds in time. Uh, this might get fucked up in the future once next-gen consoles start messing around with 120 frames per second modes. Uh, but for now, just assume when I say something is one frame, that's 16.66 milliseconds, and you can do the multiplication to uh, any kind of unit. Uh, but A lot of things in fighting games happen in measures of frames, and that is why I'm going to be referring to them a lot throughout this episode, so keep that in mind. So let's jump right to the first kind of netcode, and that is delay-based netcode. This is the simplest to explain and also the simplest to implement. So does it mean it's a bad one? 
Uh, yes, that's the bad one. Oh. If you know networking a little bit, uh, you know that ping time is your round trip uh, time to uh, another server and another computer, in this case, the other player. Um, and if you want to get the one-way travel time that it takes for uh, your message to reach the other person, uh, you divide that ping time by two. Then if you divide that one-way travel time by 16 milliseconds, you get the number of frames of delay that you want to uh, apply to your inputs. So what is going to happen when you're in a delay-based netcode environment is whenever you press a button on your arcade stick or whatever, the game is going to take note of that input. It's going to start sending it to the opponent immediately, but it's also going to delay the input on your screen by that number of frames. So the idea is that your move is going to come out on your screen at about the same time your opponent receives that input. Now, it is a little bit more complicated than that because there still needs to be some sort of synchronization routine that exists uh, that ensures that things are coming out on the right frames and that you're seeing the same frames at the same times. But at a basic level, that is sort of how delay-based netcode works. Now, can you think of any uh, major issues that could arise from something like this? Hmm. That you receive too... Like, there's already another input in the stream so that it gets conflicted with the, the first one or something like that? No, it's actually just way more basic than that. Your connection hmm. is not necessarily going to have a consistent, ping, a consistent ping over the entire game. Oh, okay. So... This introduces variable delay, which means if your ping time changes by enough of a margin uh, throughout the course of a game, your delay is going to change. Um, and what also happens is that if you or your opponent's inputs are late beyond that delay window, uh, the game is going to need to pause and wait for the input to arrive for the game to continue. So you're generally Ooh. like, if you look at footage of all like Street Fighter 4 or something like that, uh, there's a spinner dialogue box that shows up on top of the game and it's not a great experience. A spinner for wheels? Yeah. Oh my goodness. So oh. it's just kind of goofy. <laughs> I understand the the adjective bad netcode now. Yeah. Um, it's going to get sad later when I tell you this is kind of the norm. Um, oh no, really? <laughs> we'll get to it. Um, so the, the problem with uh, the spinner dialog box that pops up over the game is that this pauses the game and uh, if you know fighting games a little bit, a lot of fighting games have special moves, and special moves require you to uh, input motions with the stick, right? So your your uh, supers are going to be like a half circle forward, or you're going to do quarter circle forward, quarter circle forward punch or something like that to make a special move come out. And because the game is paused when that spinner comes up, it eats your inputs. <laughs> Oh no! Yeah, so really? you, you can miss a critical move in the game uh, oh, no. because the inputs are eaten by that dialogue box. And like the the dumb solution to this is, oh, well, just wait for the dialogue box to go away and finish your move. Except you don't know when the dialogue box is going to go away, so you can't really recover from this kind of situation. And of course, if you wait and then the second for you to process it, the dialog box went away is too, like you, you lost those frames where you needed to do your special moves. Oh, that's so funny. Yeah, oh, wow. it's just kind of a shitty experience. Um, but like, 
often you're not going to run into this sort of uh, spinner interruption. Like this is in the worst cases. And generally, if there are too many of those, your game is just going to drop and you're not going to actually make it through the entire game. Um, but it's still something that can happen and it kind of sucks. In general, the issue with delay-based netcode is unpredictable responsiveness of inputs because at a low delay, the game can feel pretty responsive. At a high delay, it's going to feel like you're playing underwater. And the fact that it can change between those two things at any point really sucks because your body and your brain can adjust to uh, a, like up to maybe four to six frames of delay realistically. You're, you can adjust to that. The problem is if it fluctuates, it becomes a lot harder to adjust to it because you never know when it's going to change. Um, so th- that is the major issue with delay-based netcode. It's funny that you mentioned that our brain can adjust. Uh, I've, you'll see my example is really bad, but true though. Um, I've learned through my brothers, because my brother is in construction, that when you use stairs, it's important that the first two, three steps that you take are at equal height, or if they are not equal, you're, let's say you have one higher than the other, your brain will adjust and then you'll be able to go up the stairs. But if it's just the first step that is problematic and then the right, the other ones are at uh, equal height, then your brain gets fucked up because your brain is not able to adapt. That's true. I, I run into that a lot with like uh, outdoor stairs. Mm-hmm. And that, that fucks me up. That makes a lot of sense, actually. So I've learned about that, and it's semi-related to uh, to that too. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I, I know I made delay-based netcode look very bad, and it is very bad. But <laughs> I also want to be fair to it and say, if your connection to your opponent is consistent and quick enough, delay-based netcode experience can be very good. Uh, but the problem is those conditions are incredibly strict for it to be a good experience. If you don't meet those conditions, performance and consistency falls off very, very quickly. Uh, if you can play a game against an opponent where you have a one frame or two frame delay consistently, realistically, it's not going to feel that different from if you're playing on a better kind of netcode. So I just want to be straight up front and actually say that because it's... It's factually true. Um, it does sound like it, it is... Okay, I know it's netcode. Like it, it, it was built in the mindset that it should go through the internet. Yes. But it sounds to me like it was built to go over land, if you understand what I'm trying to draw here. More meaning that you can control the network it runs on top of, so you can create this ideal environment versus going through the internet where you control nothing of that, of that network. Yeah, and I I think there's a lot of sense to that when you consider that a lot of online-enabled fighting games come from the arcade environment, and arcades are effectively using, like, tunneled lands to function. Uh, Mm. So it it makes a lot of sense in that aspect. Um, The problem is a lot of Japanese games have never evolved from that uh, mentality, and this is sort of what I'm leading into. So like I said... If you can play a game with one frame or two frames consistently, it's not going to feel any different from the better kind of netcode that we're going to discuss in just a little bit. However, due to the population density and geographical footprint of Japan, matches in Japan often meet the strict conditions that uh, are required for this netcode to behave correctly. 
outside of Japan, this very rarely happens. And that means your experience is largely shit everywhere else. (laughs) And this has led to a big issue with Japanese developed games because Japanese developers play their games online in their country and they think it works great. (laughs) And so they stick with this netcode thinking... It's not the netcode's fault. It works great here. It's the international network infrastructure that sucks. And they should fish, fix their shitty internet instead of making us do the hard work for them. <laughs> Every time you explain me this part, and we talk about it offline a couple of weeks ago, and I was just crying out loud because it's so... How can I say it? Is it kind of like just... I don't even know, but it's so funny because it's like, tell me, I'll tell you what's wrong with your system. It's not my code. It's your network. It's your internet. And in a miracle world where they could actually improve the network infrastructure in the West, it, it could be sufficient. Like, I'm not convinced it actually would be because, like, to be honest, like, the rest of the world, excluding Japan, is a very large place compared to Japan. Uh, so it wouldn't actually work as well as they think they would, even if the infrastructure was improved. Um, but the thing is, like, we have a solution, and that is what we're going to be discussing now. A different kind of netcode that is much more resilient to all of this shit by a lot. And you will laugh when you find out by how much. Uh, that basically, the infrastructure is not the problem here. <laughs> Yeah, I think somebody needs to act those Japanese developer, and I know I'm suggesting that they get act, but you'll see why. Not to steal money, not to steal secrets, no. Just make sure that they install, I guess, the Windows equivalent, because they're developing on Windows or even Linux, whatever, but the, the Windows equivalent to Network Link Conditioner on <laughs> macOS uh, from the Xcode developer tools and just install it on their device, uh, on their dev machines, and just make it run at like 3G network speeds and then see what they do. And the most baffling shit, this wasn't in my notes at all, but I just thought of it, is if you go look at the Dreamcast game library in Japan, there were a bunch of fighting games released for like 56k modems. I don't even understand how that worked. 56k modem? Wow. Yeah, because the the Dreamcast had to build... Well, I I think in Japan you had to buy it separately, but it had a 56k modem, and it was like the first system you could play online realistically with an online network, and they released a whole bunch of Capcom fighting games for dial-up modems, and I, unfortunately, like, I've never seen these games played over dial-up, but I would love to see a game of dial-up, like Street Fighter 3 or something, because I don't believe that it actually works, because how could it? If it doesn't work with broadband today, how could it work on 56K? <laughs> wow. Yeah. I, I don't want to make it to a big, uh, a big diversion on our current topics, but seriously, uh, we've been talking a lot about like a video game preservation in other episodes. I kind of wish more people and a good example you brought up last week, last episode, excuse me, was the uh, GT4 online. Mm-hmm. It's like we need to find a way to preserve the she old server environment just to relive that and maybe to see what was working well versus what we're doing today with our magic and nice network of all interweb things around the world that leads to possibly bad network net code. Yeah, I'm not convinced it's necessarily better, but 
<laughs> Possibly. I'm not saying it's better either, but I think it's going to be good to relive that. It, too. it would not, be really funny, yeah. Right, but to see like what we did when we had so much less resources. And like for example, connection. Uh, the Super Nintendo had what was called the X-Link modem you could get to play like a very limited selection of uh, network-enabled games online. And that was also a dial-up thing. And a couple of years ago, somebody actually did get that working again. Oh, nice. Uh, so maybe there's hope for the dreamcast stuff the problem is like the dreamcast stuff a lot of it was japan only and japan does mm-hmm. not really do well with regards to that sort of conservation stuff uh so there's less of a chance there but like i i might even go check like did someone record a match that happened online on a vhs tape or something and upload it to the internet i just want to see that it, that it actually works <laughs> yeah yeah okay so let's move on to the actually good netcode and that is rollback netcode the hero of 2020 and 2021. Um, oh, is that recent? Uh, well, it, it, people in the last two years have really fallen in love with throwback netcode ah, because people okay, can't okay. play offline anymore. Uh, so when a game has shitty netcode, you just can't play it anymore. I see, I see. Um, So rollback is primarily aiming to eliminate one problem with uh, delay-based netcode, which is variable delay. Get rid of that variable delay. We're going to have a fixed delay and ideally at a very low frame count. Uh, most games with the rollback will default to one frame or two frame, uh, delays. Some games have configurable fixed delays. Uh, this is not a problem. It's just that you usually people who don't know what this means will set it to zero frames, which is not good because it will cause <laughs> a bunch of issues. Um, but, uh, games that do it automatically generally set it to either one frame or two frames. And the idea with this uh, delay window is if you receive the inputs during that delay, it's fundamentally no different than that best-case scenario delay-based netcode with a good connection. Because literally, like, in the best-case scenario, it is just one-frame or two-frame delay-based netcode. That's why I was careful to underscore that in the best-case scenario, it performs great. Because if you have... If you still enter those conditions, it's going to perform exactly the same as it would in delay-based netcode. What happens, though, is if you don't get that input within that frame window, the game doesn't actually pause. Instead of pausing, the game is going to predict the the player's input and continue running with that predicted input. For all intents and purposes, uh, like you might think like predict means super complicated algorithm based on... uh, how your game works and all that shit. No, actually, it's even dumber than that. It just repeats the last input it got. Uh, because huh. ge- generally, this is going to be correct. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because button smashing and fighting games, more or less. And also because it's 16 millisecond windows. In reality, like consecutive frames, there's not that much of a change in consecutive frames. Uh, mm-hmm. So generally, you can just repeat the last input and assume that it's correct. And you're probably correct. Uh, of course, like, you're not just going to be playing against this input indefinitely. When the game eventually receives that input that it was supposed to get however many frames ago, the game engine is going to rewind internally to the frame where that input should have happened, and it's going to re-simulate all of the frames in between the frame where that input should have come in and the one you're meant to be seeing next. This is where the rollback nature comes from, because it's rolling back to where that input should have happened, and then it's 
playing out how the game should have happened up until the point where you are right now. And then once the the game engine is caught up to where the game state should be, the only frame you're going to see rendered on screen is the one that is supposed to be in front of you right now. So in practice, what this means when you're playing a rollback game is you're sacrificing the fidelity of animations for responsive, predictable gameplay. Any movement that was not accurately simulated by uh, repeating the input, like I told you, will cause visual warping on screen, where you will see like characters snapping into the position where they should be. Uh, moves that come in a bit late might skip one or two frames of their startup animation because that is where the animation would have been if the input had come in on time. So animations may be a slightly bit more jerky in bad network conditions, but for the most part, you can't really tell when you're playing the game. In terms of what this means for game developers, uh, your game logic needs to be able to run outside of a rendering loop because you need to be able to simulate frames without drawing them on screen. Uh, your game logic needs to be light enough that multiple frames can be simulated within the time span you normally have to run game logic for a single frame. So if I have, let's say, uh, an eight-frame rollback window, then you have to make sure that you can run your game loop eight times in a single frame to actually simulate all eight of those frames so that the frame you're rendering has the correct result, right? And of course, you need to have buffers in memory uh, to keep inputs and game states and all of that stuff for the past however many frames in your rollback window so you can accurately re-simulate things if any uh, data comes in late. So the practical benefits of this are huge. Um, Effectively, rollback netcode is fault tolerance for delay-based netcode. Um, and it drastically changes everything about who you can play against uh, and where you can play against. So with good implementations of rollback netcode, you can play with pings up to 200 milliseconds. By modern internet standards, 200 milliseconds is most of the world. Um So if you compare this to delay-based netcode, delay-based netcode starts getting problematic past 250 kilometers away on North American internet. And I'm being generous with 250 kilometers. It's actually probably closer to 100 kilometers if we're being really honest. Wow. So it kind of falls apart. Oh, and it... It explains why you meant Japan because, you know, with Japan's infrastructure, it may, it might be 500 kilometers, which I don't know the size of the whole Japan uh, island, but it, like you might go from one extreme to the other and then that's okay. Yeah. And even like, uh, like all of Japan is on fiber and lots of Korea is on fiber and you can do Japan Korea quite comfortably as well. Uh, huh. so like it, it's not just limited to Japan, but like that part of Asia mostly can play against each other, but outside of those places with very, very good internet, it's kind of a coin toss if delay-based netcode is actually going to work or not, depending on the game you're playing. If I compare that to a Guilty Gear Strive tournament that I watched a couple weeks ago, the competition was happening at 10,500 kilometers distance, Osaka to Ottawa, Canada. Ooh. Things started getting problematic around 11,000 kilometers, which is a lot more than 250 kilometers, <laughs> which was my generous uh, range for uh, delay-based netcode. So 
naturally what this does is it widens the eligible uh, player pool for matchmaking. It also means that you're much more likely to play more players at your skill level. And less frustrating netplay and better matched opponents means higher player retention, which means more active player base, which means it's just the circle of life. It just keeps feeding itself. You're just going to have more players over time because your netcode doesn't suck. Um, this also means that older games or indie games with not very popular scenes uh, are playable online for much longer. Because if rollback netcode is in place in these games, the likelihood that the few interested players are capable of playing against each other is much, much higher than it would be in delay-based netcode games. And like notably for me, it enables people who live in more remote areas with little or no fighting game scene locally to still participate in fighting game culture. Like here in Tuakivya, we have like two tournaments a year. We have a Street Fighter tournament every year and we have a Smash. I think we have two Smash tournaments a year usually, like last year, obviously not. Um, if you're not interested in Street Fighter V or uh, Smash Ultimate, uh, too bad because they're not really anybody playing fighting games here in Trois-Rivières. Um, But thanks to uh, rollback-enabled games and stuff like Fightcade, which I'll discuss later, uh, it means that I can still play fighting games against other humans and not have a miserable experience like I was on all of the delay-based games. So uh, I'm going to move on to the next section, but do you have any uh, notes on these benefits before I move on to notable bad implementations of rollback netcode? Um, I guess maybe I was about to ask what are the downsides to it, and I guess that's the next section? No, there are no downsides per se for uh, rollback netcode. So the, the interesting thing is it's just a strict upgrade on... Uh, delay-based netcode. Like, there are downsides, but the downsides are inherent in the fact that this is a network-based thing. And, like, yes, we shaved one or two frames of animation from the startup animation of a move, and this can be problematic for your amount of reaction time in certain cases to do something. But it's just, like, there's not much we can do about it unless suddenly we have light-speed internet everywhere. Right. So within reasonable bounds, it's a strict upgrade to uh, delay-based netcode, and there are no downsides that are really visible. Right, because we're not yet at... Uh, and that's maybe the main downsides I f- would say is, because you did say that you need to keep the game state uh, in memory for longer, so you can roll it back. That It maybe limits the... Not the size, but the visual effect or the the things that can be done on fighting games because if you take 15 milliseconds to render a frame every 1667 uh, uh, like you cannot roll back too much right if you took that much time yeah like one of the things I'm going to mention is that it is definitely harder to retrofit rollback into an existing game than it is to design a new game with with rollback. And in fact, if you design yeah. a new game with rollback, you can take into consideration things like uh, your default frame delay and all and how much frames will, on average, be shaved off of your animations to build that factor into the game, so that it basically comes out not being a problem for your specific right, right. game. Um, but otherwise, like 
there are no real downsides to this approach, which is why people are holding it up as this magic solution to a lot of the world's problems right now. But again, people cannot backport it, let's put it this way, on current games because there might be consideration that will conflict with it and then people are like, no, we want it everywhere. I mean, it can be done because like uh, Code Mystics is a company that has been porting old arcade uh snk games to uh to pc and to ps4 and all of that stuff with rollback netcode and those games are fantastic nice. uh oh, so nice. so it can be done it's just like if you have a game like i can't even think of a good example because fighting games tend to not necessarily be pushing the the edge of hardware but if you have right, like a fighting right. game that pushes the edge of the hardware and then you're like six months after the game came out we should add rollback to this yeah you're probably going to have to dial back a certain amount of stuff but i think most games right now do actually have enough leeway that they can actually implement it it's just do you have the financial incentive to retrofit it into an existing game right now? And I don't think a lot of people see that calculus working out in their favor. That's good. The good thing about rollback is that um, the big Japanese game sort of noticed that it was a thing a couple of years ago and tried to implement it. The problem is they implemented it badly and that gave a terrible reputation <laughs> for rollback in Japan. Um. So I'm going to talk briefly about these two games because they're major games and you have definitely heard about them. And it's kind of embarrassing that they're terrible. Um, so the first is Street Fighter V. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. So this is a game being played at the Olympics this year. Uh, just want to oh, remind that's you. True. Mm -hmm. That's true. Uh, so the, the problem with this is, uh, you need some form of mechanism in your netcode that ensures the players are seeing the same frame at the same time and keeps them in sync over the course of the match. Uh, the problem is they don't really have that in Street Fighter V, and that means that the games can desync over time, and that means that one player will see rollbacks disproportionately to another player. Uh, yeah. Um, so it, over the course of a game, one player can become much more likely to encounter rollbacks and jerkiness than the other because they are seeing different frames at the same time. And that means that naturally there is someone who is going to be rolling back all the time and one is not. Uh, that is very bad. Um, and the problem is like, you don't want competitive games to have downsides that only apply to one side. Uh, you generally want, if there is a downside for it to be applied evenly and that is a big problem, especially for a game that is being played at high-level esports and at the Olympics this year. <laughs> so that that kind of sucks. Um, what makes this extra embarrassing is that uh, the same netcode was used in Marvel vs. Capcom Infinite, which was Capcom's next fighting game, and this desyncing issue was fixed. It was never back backported to Street Fighter V. Uh, there huh. Last year, there was this huge drama around, uh, right before the pandemic hit, actually, where uh, someone made a fan patch to actually add this syncing mechanism back into the game. And it was fantastic for like a week when everybody had this patch installed, everybody was syncing with everyone and then netcode was just working great. Uh, and then Capcom patched the game to block that patch. Uh, <laughs> so you could not do it and they 
tried to improve the netcode and it didn't really work and we're sort of back at square one so they they patched the patch and not patched the real problem yes and uh capcom's producer he has since left the company luckily uh but the producer of street fighter 5 at the time kept talking in interviews oh we're so proud that our game has great online and that it's going to be played at the olympics and uh yeah and he's gone now uh so (laughs) oops yeah, that was kind of embarrassing. Uh, but maybe not quite as embarrassing as Tekken 7, which is the other game with the bad implementation. And this is the one I was talking to you about uh, when I was pitching the idea for this show, which is this is a rollback implementation that was done completely backwards, literally backwards. Um like we said, uh, rollback works with a fixed delay and a variable amount of rollback frames based on the connection. They implemented literally the opposite. They implemented variable delay, which is the thing that rollback was supposed to fix about delay-based netcode. <laughs> and they have a <laughs> fixed amount of rollback frames, which is always three, which is not much, to be honest. And th- the way this manifests is unless your connection is consistently gradually getting worse over the entire length of the match you're probably never actually going to hit the rollback window and therefore it's just delay based netcode so they did all of the engine work to do rollback but it doesn't matter because you've hit rollback maybe like five percent of the time wow and the most amazing thing about this is the developers either don't seem to understand or don't want to understand they implemented it backward and because they think that the people who are commenting on their implementation don't understand how networks work uh so it's too bad because second seven is a fantastic game but it's kind of unplayable with this netcode wow Okay, now that we've uh, taken the piss on uh, some bad implementations, <laughs> uh, let's talk about some good implementations. Uh, <clears throat> so the first one I want to talk about is Fightcade and kind of GGPO as well. So GGPO was the first rollback proof of concept for fighting games. It was developed by uh, Tom and Tony Canyon, who run the Evo tournament uh, every year, which is the biggest fighting game tournament uh, series in the world. And the idea with GGPO is, hey, let's take this arcade emulator called Final Burn, patch in rollback netcode, and uh, create matchmaking lobbies so people can actually play old arcade games with each other over the internet. And this was traditionally done for like, uh, at the time it was Street Fighter 2, Street Fighter Third Strike, uh, maybe Vampire Savior, and a couple other games. Um, Fightcade sort of took over after uh, Tom and Tony Canyon went to go work for uh, Riot Games uh, when they are currently working on a fighting game that will presumably have great netcode at Riot Games, uh, which will release in the coming years. Uh, So Fightcade is basically like the new generation GGPO. Same deal, patches rollback netcode into Final Burn, provides matchmaking for basically every multiplayer arcade game released until the early 2000s. So you can go... uh, you can filter by year and I think like you can go from 1971 to 2012, I think technically, but it drops off significantly after like 2003 or whatever. Um, and what is great about Fightgate is let's say I want to play King of Fighters 98, which is one of my favorite, uh, fighting games. And I want to play it literally any time of the day. There are probably 600 other people in the lobby. I can just go play against at any time of the day. And yes, a lot of them are in South America and in Korea, but it doesn't matter because Rollback Netcode is actually able to make me play with them in a playable way with all that distance. 
so Fightcade is fantastic. I've been using it a lot this year uh, because a lot of my uh, friends' tournaments are held on Fightcade games. And it is cross-platform, currently runs on uh, Windows, Linux, and OS X through Wine. <clears throat> and uh, every day I pray that Wine keeps working because it is the one Wine thing I am going to be very sad breaks one day. Um, and maybe I'll have to get a PC just to play Fight Kite. But that is uh, really cool. Another notable good implementation is Slippy, which came out uh, early last year for Super Smash Bros. Melee. It is rollback netcode in the Dolphin GameCube emulator. And uh, Slippy is also just like a massive patch that you apply to Super Smash Bros. Melee that adds unranked and ranked multiplayer right into Dolphin, uh, right into Smash Bros. Melee. Uh, you can log in with your username and you can match against your friends or you can match against random people. And the amazing thing is the Smash Brothers community is so dedicated to this old ass game uh, that they are pushing the state of the art uh, with new techniques. So a couple of weeks ago, I watched a video that explains how they are doing subframe rollbacks. Uh, it's super complicated, and I'm not even entirely sure I understand why it's needed. But hey, they can do rollbacks on fractional frames for some reason. Why not? <laughs> huh. Yeah, apparently it actually matters due to the speed of uh, melee and how inputs are handled in the game. Uh, I think inputs are actually handled on fractional frames as well in melee, which actually makes it matter that they need subframe rollbacks for certain types of actions. Uh, so there's like a 20 minute video you can go watch that actually explains like, here are all of the in-game events that actually benefit from subframe rollbacks. And here's how we patch them in and an experimental emulator. You can go try out to, uh, try the game of subframe rollbacks to have better visual information of what is actually happening uh, at a quicker rate than if you actually just snap to the nearest frame. So have you noticed a common thread between these two good implementations of rollback? Uh, I think so. Okay. What is it? They are patches, more or less. They are bringing rollback netcode to games that were not built for it. Well, more importantly, there are third-party solutions to a problem. <laughs> oh, okay. That, yeah, yeah, that too. Um, so this is where I get to the wind of change section. Um, so if you take a look at most Western-developed fighting games uh, or ports of Japanese fighting games that were outsourced to Western developers since 2010... Uh, most of them have had some sort of rollback netcode. Um, hmm. People in the fighting game community in the West jumped on GGPO when it first came out and they saw how game-changing it was to online multiplayer and they were like, every fighting game needs to have this, obviously. And so the Western developers kind of did that. And so uh, they all implemented some form of rollback netcode. I believe last year or the year before, uh, GGPO even became open source under a BSE license. So now basically anybody can implement, it can just use GGPO in their game if they want. Obviously, they have to do some adapting work to actually get it in there. But you, you have an off-the-shelf option if you are truly not that skilled at um, netcode development. Uh as arcades are being screwed over by the pandemic in Japan, uh, Japanese fighting game developers are slowly realizing that Japan is no longer the majority of the fighting game market. It's actually the rest of the world that is there. And it turns out that foreign fighting game fans really, really value rollback netcode because the, comp uh, the combination of lower population density and less reliable infra internet 
means that the netcode that works great in Japan is hardly playable outside of Japan. And I think in the last two years in particular, uh, we have been so fucking loud uh, and so insistent on rollback uh, that that alongside with the collapse of online player bases for a bunch of different games during the pandemic has led certain developers, especially Japanese developers, to want to adopt rollback finally in their newest games. So the first game to really kick off this trend is Guilty Gear Strive, uh, which came out a month ago, actually. I thought it was longer, but no, it's just a month ago. And it's a massive success story for rollback in Japanese fighting games. Um, so this game was announced two years ago, uh, and they had a closed beta which had delay-based netcode, and everybody hated it. And then they put out surveys to the fans, and the fans all said, no, you actually need to fix your shit and put rollback in the game. Every interview they did with every Western press outlet asked about rollback, and they were like, what the fuck is this? Why do you keep asking us about rollback? Uh at the same time that this was happening in the press and in their surveys and all of that stuff, um, there was a fan modification to Guilty Gear XX Accent Core Plus R, which is literally the name of their old game, uh, <laughs> which added rollback into that game as a proof of concept. And uh, it was so successful and so good that they actually just brought the team in-house. And not nice. only did they get to complete the rollback beta for uh, Accent Core Plus R, um, and now it's in the final version of that game, but they also basically realized, yeah, we need to have this and Strive. So they delayed the game by a year to actually incorporate rollback netcode into Strive. And uh, I think the success speaks for itself. So on release, uh, it hit the highest con concurrent peak player numbers of all fighting games on Steam below Mortal Kombat 11 and Dragon Ball Fighters. So Mortal Kombat is the biggest fighting game in the West. Uh, so that is kind of normal. And Dragon Ball Fighters is just a massive IP. So it kind of makes sense that those would be higher. But aside from those... Highest concurrent peak player numbers on Steam. Sold 300,000 copies in the first week on PS4 and PS5, which is about five times more than the previous Guilty Gear game did in the wow. last month. Um, it's widely agreed upon to be one of the best implementations of rollback netcode in a fighting game thus far. All fighting games, not just Japanese ones. Uh, there have been multiple North America to Japan competitions and tournaments that have been held with some of the best players in the world. And effectively, what this has done is it has enabled Evo-like, uh, Evo levels of competition in your living room thanks to good netcode. You can get the best players in the world playing against each other, even though they're halfway across the world, because the netcode is that resilient. So, massive success story. Um, then SNK sort of sees this going on uh, and realizes, huh, we're working on King of Fighters 15. Maybe we should add rollback netcode to King of Fighters 15. So that's coming out early next year. It's notable because SNK's two previous fighting games, since they've returned to console games, uh, have been fantastic games that are completely unplayable online uh, because they had <laughs> the worst delay-based netcode ever made. Uh, the pandemic completely killed the scene around Samurai Showdown. Uh, Samurai Showdown is actually a very good game, apparently, that was seeing a ton of hype at local events, but you could only realistically play it offline because the netcode was so bad, and like nobody's played it for a year, uh, even though they keep releasing DLC for it because nobody can play offline. Uh, so sort of having seen how bad the pandemic hit SNK's uh, chances at 
having hype around their game, uh, they realized, and especially seeing Strive success, that yeah, they, they sort of need to get rolled back into this game ASAP. Uh, so they've delayed the game as well uh, until next year to incorporate that. And I'm very excited to see how this turns out. Uh, there are a number of other issues that I'm worried about with SNK, but the rollback is not one of them, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, so things are changing and are looking good in Japan uh, for rollback netcode and this is really like all of this happened in the last year and a half uh before it was just hopeless japanese developers did not care about rollback aside from like the two who tried and failed miserably uh and it didn't really look like there was any hope that japanese developers were ever going to get on the train and this year uh just seeing guilty gear strive completely change uh, the bad reputation that rollback got in Japan due to Street Fighter V and Tekken 7. Uh, it just, it filled people with optimism, which is not something you have a lot, uh, in, in gaming circles in general, but also fighting game circles especially. Um, so that's really nice. Now let's talk about the, uh, the weird stepchild of these, uh, these netcode methods, or actually of one uh, netcode method. Let's talk about absorb netcode, uh, which is very strange. It is only in one game, kind of, and it's not really a different netcode thing. It's kind of strange. So let me set up the context first. Um, so if you are a PlayStation Plus user, you probably know that Virtua Fighter V Ultimate Showdown has been free uh, since June 1st. Um, and Virtual Fighter 5 Ultimate Showdown is basically the revival of the Virtual Fighter series. It has been dead outside of Japan for basically 10 years. Uh, it had a very dedicated arcade uh, player race in Japan, but uh, pretty much everywhere else, nobody was playing it. And for the 60th anniversary of Sega, they wanted to bring Virtual Fighter 5 back into the spotlight and on modern platforms. So uh, they started this Virtual Fighter V Ultimate Showdown project in February of 2020. And because they wanted it to be lined up with Sega's birthday, uh, they had a strict timeline of it needed to be out by June 2021. And for some reason, they wanted this to come out on PS4 and Arcade at the same time. Uh, why make it easy when you can make it harder? Um, but importantly, they are not using the old VF engine for this. Uh, they ported it to the modern engine, which is the Dragon Engine, which is used by all of the Yakuza games. And what's notable about uh, the Dragon Engine is so far it has only ever been used to make single-player games. It ha doesn't have any uh, network multiplayer. So they had to sort of retrofit the VF5 netcode into a single-player engine, which is kind of weird. And the people at Sega sort of said, okay... Uh, we have these constraints. What's the easiest thing we can do to improve the netcode? And their answer is really strange. Uh, it's not really a different style of netcode at all. It is, you take delay-based netcode and you route it through cloud relay servers to reduce the inconsistencies of peer-to-peer -peer routing. So what happens is when you matchmake with another player, it actually talks to Google Cloud Platform. <clears throat> And it evaluates which relay servers are equidistant to you and the other player. And it tries to uh, get you guys to connect to the same relay server. Hmm. And what this actually does in practice is that the routing is quicker and more consistent. And the relay server absorbs delay frames that would exist if you were relying on a peer-to-peer -peer connection. It's a very strange and very Sega approach to this problem, 
I remember when I was playing Fantasy Star Online 2 regularly, whenever there were like weird network issues with the game, they would always solve it at the routing level and never like in the code or whatever. And it's just baffling that they think of that as their solution. Um, but yeah, it, like one of the, that was one of the first things that jumped out to me when I heard about this approach. So why are they doing this? Well, naturally, there are some advantages and there are some disadvantages. So it doesn't necessarily reduce the amount of input delay, but what it does do is it smooths the consistency of the connection to the point that when there is a delay, the delay remains consistent throughout a match instead of fluctuating all the time, which does ultimately lead to a more pleasant experience. It also weirdly extends the range of players that can be played with comfortably. Uh, We've seen matches between the Midwest US to Europe. We've seen East Coast US to Japan matches that were perfectly playable. And this is completely unheard of for delay-based netcode. It should not work, but for some reason, going through a Google Cloud Platform server works. Uh, It's kind of amazing when you actually see it. And uh, because of all the good press that Rollback has been having recently, when people first heard about this, they were like, this seems like the dumbest idea in the world. There's no way it can possibly (laughs) work. And I think a lot of people fell on their ass when they actually played the game and realized how good some of these matches were. There are, however, pretty sizable disadvantages to this approach. So the first is, it increases the cost of running online service for this game. Uh, Normally, your your online fighting games are going to have a matchmaking server, and that's about it. And the responsibilities of the matchmaking server are fairly limited in most cases. Um, now, instead of just having matchmaking servers, you are responsible for having Google Cloud Platform relay servers all over the world. And that is going to get expensive. And what's extremely strange is because Virtual Fighter 5 has mostly been free to a lot of PlayStation gamers, like I know Sony pays them per copy, but it's a tiny amount per copy. It's just really strange. How are they going to make this work economically? And the problem with that, of course, is if interest in certain regions dies off over time, there might be less of a financial incentive to keep servers alive in those regions, which means that the relatively good uh, quality of the online service that we have today might degrade over time as they shut off certain regions of servers. Though it could be a benefit of relying on a platform like GCP because you can scale down certain regions, some of your server, and have bigger instances in the most popular one and have smaller instances or close to zero and then bootstrap some quickly when needed. Yeah, definitely. Um, But like, it's always a risk because we don't know how they're managing that versus if it was just peer-to-peer all the time, we're fairly sure we know how that's going to turn out. Um, next disadvantage, players that are closer to each other than to relay servers are going to have a worse experience because all players must play through a relay. There is no way to opt out of relay servers. You need to go through a relay. And we've seen reports from people in South America and the Middle East who are just too far from the relays to actually play comfortably. So they actually can't play with their local communities because the delay is so high However, if they were to use traditional peer-to-peer delay netcode, they would be able to play with each other fine because they're relatively close together. Um, This caused uh, (laughs) Absorb netcode to get the nickname Racist netcode, uh, and there's definitely some truth in that. Uh, It's 
kind of a shitty thing. Uh, I believe like uh, certain games actually do use relay uh, servers for various uh, reasons. Like I think Destiny uses them for uh, DDoS protection because Destiny, and this is complicated, but a lot of Destiny is peer-to-peer and not actually server-based. And uh, the problem with this is in the most competitive game modes, it was entirely peer-to-peer for a while. So you could just look up the other team's IPs and uh, DDoS them and win the match. Uh, so oh. uh, over time, they've started adding relay servers and all of that. But that's always something you can opt out from in a lot of these games. Whereas now you don't really have an option with VF5. Uh, and not having the option basically means that certain regions of the world are just out of luck if they actually want to play VF5 online. They actually have to go back to the PS3 version or the Xbox 360 version, which is kind of shitty. Um, and then sometimes there's just no equidistant relay server. Sometimes one player is closer to the server than another, and we get back into a weird Street Fighter V-like situation, which is uh, players. one player can have a choppier experience than another. Uh, and this has been observed by watching uh, streamers stream both sides of the same game and realizing that one player was having a much shittier experience because they were actually quite further away from the relay server than the other person was. Uh, and again, if your netplay is going to have a downside, you generally want the downside to be distributed evenly to both players and not disadvantage one player uh, disproportionately to the other. So despite all of this, like there are definite flaws with this approach. My personal experience with uh, this kind of netcode is that it's been very, very good, but I think I sort of benefit from being uh, in one of the more populated areas of Canada or close to it, and therefore uh, the relay servers are not very far from me, and there are a lot of other players that are equidistant from the relays and all of that stuff, so it's great. I uh, can't really complain uh, that much about uh, the netcode. The one thing I did notice is uh, it definitely has the same uh, jumping, not jumpiness, but like, so m- my internet is uh, in- infam- famously not very good. <laughs> famously? Uh, yeah. I'm sure a listener of this podcast knows about that. Well, they they don't hear the raw recordings. If they did, they'd know very well that uh, that... My internet is not great. Um, oh no, I was saying that because I, we sometimes bitch about your internet. That's on true. The podcast itself. Um, but the thing is, like, I can play rollback games, and even if my connection decides to randomly drop out for like half a second or something, uh, it recovers great. This has the recovery of delay-based netcode, which is probably my game is just over if there's one of those glitches on my internet and it can't recover easily from that. And that's why I I prefer rollbacks fault tolerance and that it is more uh, robust and to these kinds of outages. But like my internet is also shit. I'm fully (laughs) conscious of that. Um, So it's hard to like feel bad for the net code in that case. Don't, one thing I like about more network resiliency is I know these games are PC or console based, but let's imagine a world where you would play them over a tablet, a cell phone, mm-hmm. over LT networks and over the air networks. In theory, if if it becomes more feasible, especially if we don't pay too much for internet or, or bandwidth over those networks, that's a different topic. But the idea is when they, in theory, the games that re- relies on rollback net code could be more easily ported to those types of env- environment versus the others. 
Eh, I mean, like, for, for example, a lot of games now have Wi-Fi indicators because even with rollback, Wi-Fi can be an issue. Uh, right. So it... Like, a lot of this episode was written assuming wired connections all the time, and this is definitely less likely to be the case on consoles where a lot of people are on wireless, and this is, I think, one of the things that's killing Smash Brothers right now on the Switch is not only is the netcode delay-based netcode and bad (laughs) delay-based netcode, but it's also played over Wi-Fi predominantly, uh, which is not great. Yeah, network resiliency, like, it's hard to complain about network resiliency. Like, you always want more of it. Right, exactly. Uh, so, so that's great, but I don't think it necessarily solves the issues with Wi-Fi in particular. Mm, okay, it's resilient enough for the problems when you have wired connection to wired connection. But yeah. then, if you introduce any wireless technologies in between of the two players, that becomes problematic. Yeah, hmm. and I mean, I've I've played uh, rollback games on Fightcade against someone in Sweden on an LTE modem, right? So it's, it can be done. It's not a problem. Uh, right. My other friend always plays on Wi-Fi, and our connections are generally good enough that it's not a significant issue. But I mean, if you're playing on one bar Wi-Fi at home, that can be an issue, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so th- the good news with, regard- with regards to uh, this whole absorb netcode thing is that it's actually been revealed in interviews that Sega of America pushed the uh, the Virtua Fighter team quite heavily to consider rollback prior to launch. And judging by all of the uh, stuff that's come out, it just seems like they didn't have the time to retrofit rollback into the game within the time frame they wanted to hit for the anniversary of Sega. However, what's interesting is that the interest in Virtual Fighter 5 outside of Japan has been much, much greater than anyone expected it to be. And uh, RGG Studio, which is the team that worked on the game, uh, has basically welcomed feedback from players in all regions with open arms, uh, which is a big change from how Virtual Fighter used to be, where they basically only listened to what Japan had to say. Uh, and I think... While a lot of people were pleasantly surprised by the quality of Absorb netcode, a lot of demands are still being made for rollback, and I think it's pretty fair, because implementing rollback in VF5 US would effectively eliminate the costs of the relay servers, it would solve the racist netcode issue, and it would gain them a lot of goodwill from international players. Hmm. And if you put that uh, side-by-side with the fact that they've also been relatively snappy at patching fixes for some of the biggest issues in the game right now... uh. I think there's a decent chance that they might actually go back and implement rollback into this game, which would be pretty cool. Uh, we have no hard proof that they're going to do it, but they definitely at least seem receptive to the idea of doing it. Um, and another thing that's, that I haven't really mentioned right now, or haven't really mentioned yet is that Virtual Fighter 5 Ultimate Showdown is the international game for uh, name for this game, but actually in Japan it's called Virtual Fighter Esports, and it's part of a multi-year esports commitment from Sega within Japan. Hmm. And uh, they announced the game alongside a bunch of content deals and uh, two tournament circuits and all of that stuff. And if the scene outside Japan is bigger than the scene inside Japan, it doesn't seem that unreasonable that Sega might actually want to expand their esports efforts outside of Japan. And in that case, they would actually probably want to implement rollback for that anyway, uh, just so that they can have more international online events and all that stuff to hype up the esports scene. So it's looking good. Like, I, I, I'm not going to sit here and say there's going to be rollback in VF5 eventually because uh, that's a bit of a stretch. But I think there is a realistic hope that there could be rollback in VF5 US eventually. 
And as a VF5 fan, I think that would be actually pretty great. Um, so a rare drop of optimism here on the podcast. From uh, you especially. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's a rarity. I keep it close to you. Um, so that concludes our whirlwind tour of all of these different kinds of netcode and uh, sort of a glimpse into why fighting games have been weird online for so long and why my, things might be getting better over time. One thing I am surprised, though, since we've been having some random conversation outside of this episode about that in the past few weeks, is what is so special about fighting games that other online games, like they can be used on other performance online games? Uh, you mentioned WoW. We, we can talk. We talk about Call of Duty Online for multiple of our video game episodes, and I felt that the network performance of those games were pretty reliable. So. I'm not sure if I'm throwing you under the bus with a question you cannot have the answer for, but that was my main question throughout this episode is like, what requires special netcode for fighting game compared to other online games? So a lot of the games that are popular online are actually server-based, whereas this is not server-based at all. Um, mm. first-person shooters, you log into a server. Battle Royales, you log into a server. MOBAs, you log into a server. All of these things have dedicated servers. MMOs especially have a dedicated server. Um, so, like, I think... And there is some uh, level of rollback within uh, server-based games as well. It's just that it happens between your machine and the server, and then there's some level of prediction between the client and the server as well. Um it gets tricky because you have to coordinate a lot of connections at once. Um, so you see a lot of that. When you look at games like, I mean, like Mario Party or Mario Golf is even a very good example of this. Like a lot of the uh, Nintendo online games are technically delay-based as well, uh, which is not great. Like all of the Mario mm. Parties uh, that you see that are online generally have very sluggish uh, mini game performance because that's where they can't cheat. Uh, they actually have to have some sort of real time netcode, and generally they will take the easy path and do some sort of delay based netcode, which is kind of embarrassing. Uh, but I mean, like most games that begin as multiplayer things these days, aside from fighting games, are done server based. And that is why, like, that has been a solved problem for a much longer time than. 1v1 peer-to-peer games have been. Mm, I see. And what would be the disadvantage of moving to server-based online games or fighter games? It's actually very close to what I just said about the relay servers because you're introducing an intermediate between you and the other person that can impact how much delay or is required to actually, or well, how much delay or how much rollback, depending, uh, is needed to actually do the things. And if you can just connect directly and have better results it seems like you would just connect directly to it oh yeah that's true because even like let's say in theory on games like call of duty you could play with somebody on the other side of the planet but generally speaking because the games are pretty popular you connect to servers that are somewhat local to let's say north america for example generally you try to aim for everyone in the call of duty server is equidistant to the server more or less like you have a bigger right, right. range of error because you have to but hmm interesting yeah i mean good to see how it will how it will evolve because i guess the more performant peer-to-peer 
netcode becomes, the more possibility games can use it and maybe less rely on servers, which means cheaper for online games to stay alive, which means possibly they stay alive longer. Well, like I said, like Destiny, (laughs) Destiny is one of the rare cases. And I think Halo Reach was also like this, where it's a game that seems like it should be server based, but it's actually not. It's actually a lot of it is peer to peer and only select elements run on an actual server, which is kind of interesting. It's just kind of outside the scope of this episode. But like, like for a good example of this is. In Destiny 1, there was a raid called uh, Crota's End, and basically there was this uh, this big guy, and you had to grab a sword, and he would kneel down, and you had to hit him while he was knelt down, and then he would get back up and become uh, invincible until the next damage phase. Mm-hmm. And people found out that if the person who is technically considered the scripting host of the of the uh, of the party unplugged their Ethernet cable, everyone could just continue wailing on the boss because the scripting host was offline so the invincibility period would never start off again (laughs) so like there are dangers like that if you're playing a game with like heavy scripting or stuff like that that you need to be able to like basically have the scripts running in parallel on different systems so that you can always offload to a different person at any moment if one person goes down to actually like conserve the integrity of your game in certain cases And the other thing is, like, if you look at, uh, I don't remember if this was Destiny 1 or Destiny 2. Well, I guess it applies to both. Um, when PS4 Pro came out, people were complaining, like, oh, why can't you do 60 frames per second for uh, for Destiny? And the thing is, because a lot of its networking was peer-to-peer, it had much more CPU requirement than uh, server-based games do. And what that meant is that uh, there just wasn't the CPU overhead to do 60 frames per second. Like the GPU could handle it fine, but you couldn't actually run the networking code twice as fast to actually deal with twice as many frames because a lot of it was peer to peer. Um, because the PS4 Pro's jump in CPU wasn't proportional to its jump in GPU. Uh, right. so there are always like weird edge cases like that, that like it seems inexcusable. Like when Call of Duty is running 4K 60 on PS4 Pro and you're doing like 4K 30 and you're like, they're both first person shooters and the other one looks nicer than yours why is it running faster it doesn't seem to make sense but when you actually know how the networking code is working it makes perfect sense why destiny can't be 60 on on ps4 pro right and for sure it is more complex coding wise to code an algorithm that detects that the primary os or the primary console or pc disconnected so because they were the, the scripting was running in parallel as you mentioned possibly that okay and you become the new yeah OS you have to negotiate who becomes the scripting right, host and all exactly. that stuff and then and we're and... talking about negotiation and network stack and then then it becomes easy to say let's make that all centralized in a server yeah hmm. Oh, but that's mainly it. Again, I had a couple of questions regarding, like, I guess now I know peer-to-peer versus uh, servers-based ones, and it seems I am slowly but surely getting better at understanding video games, that code, uh, and the differences between all of that fun. So it was really, really fun topic. Yeah. Good. So to find the show notes for this episode because as Yannick mentioned in the episode we'll have a couple of links to it you can find it at limitlesspossibility.net slash 165 so 165 if you want to find the back catalog of episodes at limitless 
limitlesspossibility.net. You can find the show on Twitter at limipo underscore podcast. That's L-I-M-I-P-O underscore podcast. You can find us individually on Twitter. I'm at Lukonosh. That's L-U-C-C-O-N-O-U-C-H-E. And you can find Yannick at... Sakarina. That's S-A-K-U-R-I-N-A. We'll, and we'll see you in two weeks. Actually, before we go, uh, I just realized uh, next episode is going to be the last episode before our break. And I forgot to mention the break on you, the last two did, episodes. Yeah, you didn't forget to mention it in the in the follow-up section. So you're correct. Uh, next, in, in two weeks, it's our last episode. And then we'll take the whole month of August as a break. So we'll see you in two weeks. See you in two weeks.